Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. You are listening to another episode of Observations. If it's comics, if it came from comics, if it was a comic that turned into a cartoon, that turned into a television show, a streaming show, a movie, we're talking about it here. I um, regularly detail and walk you through my own personal history with comic books, which I'm clearly obsessed with um, because I now do a (laughs) twice-weekly podcast on comics that finds me just talking about my obsession that I have had since I was a kid. The barbershop, the liquor store, the 7-Eleven, this lifelong obsession. I literally just cannot get enough of comics. Comics is my happy place. It's my sweet spot. They are um, packed into my bag before I go on vacation regularly ever since I was a kid. Uh, I I read them in the back of the car uh, driving from California to Arizona and back or California to New Mexico and back. Can you, do you, can you recall those comics that you bought on road trips? I can. It's weird. It, 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 It haunts me a little, but it's like how some guys can tell you like, statistics, baseball statistics, like just rattle them off or basketball statistics. I am a comic book statistics guy. And literally there is no more agony than, uh, than when I am deciding what to pack in my bag to take on vacation with me as I have done, uh, regularly again as a kid, but now more so as an adult. And, um, I, as, as a father of, of, you know, I am the, the, the patriarch of my family and I uh, make sure everyone gets everywhere early. Sometimes they don't really like this fact. Maybe you can relate. You're either the kid in the family in this story or you're the parent. But even as recently as the two trips that we were able to take uh, in, in, in the summer vacations that we just had, packing what I am going to take is the last thing I do in my, um, in my backpack that is literally just going to be trade paperbacks uh, I, I carry a few of the single comics with me, uh, in case you're interested, the 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 Rune, R-U-N-E. Barry Windsor Smith did a comic book for, uh, man, I don't even remember the publisher. Is it Malibu? I don't know. Rune. Uh, I had bought some back issues at a recent signing that I did in Arizona earlier this summer, but I hadn't taken them out. And so I packed those into my art bag, which is different than my backpack. In my backpack, I generally just take the, uh, the trade paperbacks or the hardcovers. <laughs> I've never taken an omnibus. I'm tempted to take an omnibus, but they're so heavy. My bag was so heavy as a result, but you don't understand. Um, we're leaving at, you know, to catch a flight at, at, you know, eight o'clock from LAX. That means we leave the house at 5 AM. Cause especially now, if you've traveled, um, since in, in the time of our our, our beautiful COVID plague that, 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 uh, you know, that the airports are even busier, especially since things opened up. So, so you need to even plan more time. And, uh, one, one trip that we were going on this summer, our travel agent said, Oh no, 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 you can't do two hours before you need to do three hours before. And I knew she was right because I did a leg through Florida this year, this, this last summer. And we did the two hours before and we barely made it. Uh, and we had an 11 o'clock at night flight and I have never seen LAX, Los Angeles International Airport as packed at that terminal and as hard to navigate. So I am packing my comics at around 4.30 a.m. 
And am I taking this Spider-Man? Am I taking this? I ultimately doubled down, honestly, and took a ton of Jack Kirby stuff. The Eternals, uh, Devil Dinosaur. <laughs> there will eventually be an entire episode on Devil Dinosaur. There has to be. It's inspired Jack work for sure. If you've never read it, it was short-lived, but it is Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy is as badass as they come. He actually then crosses over with Godzilla. I covered that in the entire Godzilla episode of this podcast, but the, uh, I took, I, I went heavy on Jack Kirby. OMAC, I, uh, I went Devil Dinosaur, I went Eternals, and, uh, I, 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 I did a bunch of Legion of Superheroes because I wanted to reread the entirety, not just some of my favorite. I, I wanted to read the entirety of of this book. And, and so that, that actually ended up being four trade paperbacks. So, so roughly between seven and eight trade paperbacks went to me on both with me on both vacations. Um, I also took my Quentin Tarantino once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, novelization, which is fantastic. I cannot recommend it enough, especially if you love Quentin's writing. It is so completely different, um, than anything that you have experienced. So, so, uh, it's different than once upon a time in Hollywood. It's not the same. It's, it's, it's not him adapting the movie. It's him basically telling the movie from a different perspective, entirely giving completely different insights. So this was my reading material. But again, when I was a kid, on the road trips, I would we would start a leg out when we were pulling out of Anaheim, California when I was a kid. I can remember, and especially this is the brilliance of, of what was going on at the time in comic books, that Marvel was heavy on annuals, summer annuals. They were a literally called annuals. Sometimes they were called giant size instead of annual giant size Avengers. But Avengers Annual 5, 6, 7, 8, these are all the, the books that I rallied around. Defenders Annual or Giant Size Defenders, number one. Uh, giant Size Thor, Thor Annuals. I would, these were the stuff, this was the stuff that was fresh on the, on the, on the spinner rack or at the magazine um, uh, section in the, in the grocery store. And I would grab these and you guys, I'd get lost in them. And, and that's how love affairs are created. You know, you look up and the next thing you're, you're like, where are we mom and dad? And they're like, we're, we're pulling through, you know, Arizona where we're in Tucson or, you know, we're almost Albuquerque um, or we're pulling into the hotel that we're staying so that we can hit the road the next day and get to Albuquerque. So the, uh, the comic books, those comic books became my buddies. Um, <laughs> my sister is seven years older than me. She never accompanied us. She always got to stay home. She always came up with some reason to throw a rager at our house while we were gone because she was wily and smart and always got out of these. So it was literally just me and my, my, my mom and dad. One time we took my cousin, but comic books were always a part of it. And I can tell you that I can, I, I remember as like it was yesterday walking into the, the, the hotel room as my dad is turning the key and I've got my giant size, my king size, my annual Hulk in my hand. Or that Thor annual where he battles Hercules. Or that Avengers annual where they battle Nuclo, which is drawn by George Perez. And, I mean, these comics would be the comics that I was pouring over until lights out. And, again, I've always said you either have the juice for the comics or you don't. And comics, while they've gone somewhat mainstream, I maintain they are still somewhat niche. The, the proliferation of all the merchandise has made them mainstream. But the comic books themselves... I think are still fairly niche and, and, uh, and, and I'm saying that from memories 
of when comic books were readily available at every gas station, drugstore, market, uh, uh, convenience store, grocery store. I felt like they were more accessible. The, the distribution network, as I've talked about, was more accessible. But again, we'd pull into a we pulled into a drugstore in New Mexico, and I got this Thor annual that I'm speaking of, where he battles Hercules on the cover, Jack Kirby cover, and I got a Defenders giant size event Defenders with Power Man and Hulk and Doctor Strange and Red Guardian. They're all running towards you. I mean, those memories are hard to trade. You, they they've never left me. And if for some reason I'm flipping through my back issues and I stop because I have some Bronze Age, I don't know how you guys categorize your comics. I have them like I have my X-Men, I have my Defenders, I have my Avengers, I have my Justice League, I have my Superman. Okay, I've got them all alphabetical. It's one of the things my dad did for me uh, the the couple summers before he passed. He uh, would come over and organize my combo collection, which is as sweet and beautiful as it sounds because he just wanted to hang out with me and my wife. Um and he'd always have lunch with us, but he would come in and tell me that he, today he organized all the M's and, you know, he, he wanted to know like this, you know, uh, uh, th- th- this, this comic book from the nineties, you know, he's put a little extra, extra flap, you know, uh, in, in the divider, you know, to let us know that that's, that's not the, the original run. I mean, he, it was so great. I still have them. I, I, I love seeing his handwriting on all the different, um, the, all the different, you know, different, um, marker and, and chapter and divider headings that he put into my collection. And, uh, so, 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 so he categorized alphabetically all that stuff. And so I'm always able to go out there, but in recent years, in the last, really the last six, seven years, as I have become more and more obsessed with the stuff that I love from my youth, I have, I have done deep dives into those, pulled those out. I've also actively now I'm buying replacement copies. And what I do is I, I have Bronze Age comic books. I have short boxes that I have set aside. I know that these six boxes are all Bronze Age that I randomly go in and out of and toss in and out of. And, you know, last year during the, the college basketball playoffs, which is, you know, roughly, you know, all of March, I was putting uh, my, my, my Bronze that like like my entire Fantastic Four collection, my entire Avengers, all my X-Men, I went out and buy, I bought Mylars because... I love the shiny, crispy, crunchy quality of those Mylars. So, so my favorite runs I've now replaced with Mylar bags, but I still have what I call, you know, reader copies. I was about to say junk copies, but the more respectable version is reader copies. I have those that I toss in routinely and I'll go back and grab. And a lot of these are those annuals and just specific issues. A DC Comics presents a Marvel team up that I really dig. Little, little snippets of every different era. And so I, I throw them all in my Bronze Age boxes and I'm, I'm revisiting those all the time. And if I come across those annuals specifically or those comic books I bought in my youth, I am frozen in place by the memory of me as a kid buying those. And, uh, and, and, and that is a love affair. And that's what I have. And I hope you have one as well. And, and, and I'm, I'm certain because you guys have told me, because I know, because so many of you that listen to this show were not... Bronze Age comic book fans because you know me because you came up buying my comics when they were being published in the late 80s, early 90s. This morning before I got up to do this show, I I was literally, I am coming into my 36th year of being published in comic books. I, I got hired when I was 18 years old. This has been pretty much all I've ever known and I am fortunate and I am blessed and there is never a day that I do not uh, just 
give all the thanks in the world to the fact, um, to, to, the, to the, the blessings that, that my career has been. I, I get to do what I, I get to draw for a living. I get to write for a living comic book characters that were not taken as seriously as the time when I was hired as they are now. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I ventured out into the, the, the wilderness of, of, of public. I, I came back from my vacation. I was uh, really knocked off my, my ass for about a week, not feeling good, sick. Didn't know if I had, you know, uh, even though I'm a vaccinated person, I, I did not know. And that's not a political statement. That's just what I chose for me. Uh, that, uh, that, that I was not feeling well. So I didn't know if I was maybe getting that Delta variant or whatever, but I made it through. I got to the other side. I felt healthy. I went out. Um, I went out to one of the popular outdoor malls here in Orange County, and I went into a GameStop. I went into a Hot Topic, uh, and and I went into um, uh, a Spencer's Gifts. And again, what's at the front of all those stores is is comic book characters, paraphernalia, action figures, pops. I mean, it, like. GameStop is a toy store now. It's been going that way for a long time, but it is 100%. You know, when I'm looking at action figures and uh, statues and stuff and pops that I did not know existed, I've fallen off in terms of my connectivity to this stuff. But it's just like, so I, I went out into the wilderness and was confronted with all of the stuff that I have loved my entire life now, again, as popular plastic items. You know, uh, as I said, action figures, mini figures and there's so many greats how can you not love all this stuff i i i want to have it all i just don't have room for all of it so and i'm not saying just stuff i'm involved with i i want that retro daredevil figure i want that retro iron man figure um i want all of the dune action figures i want little jason momoa and josh brolin in in my house with me but at this point i have literally run out of room and even my secondary storage rooms are, are overflowing in my storage units that I have. Why would I buy it and put it in there? Those are 15, 20 minute drives away. And, and why am I buying it to lock it up and never see it again? So, so these are my stupid dilemmas, but they all track with what I'm obsessed with. And I wonder, you know, if your first memories are as um, rich as mine are. Were you guys on the road in the 90, you guys tell me how you felt and thought about the books that you were buying, whether it was Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man, my... New Mutants, X-Force, Jim Lee's, Punisher, X-Men, Eric Larson's, Spider-Man. You know, these are the books that you guys love, the early image stuff. And so I know you do have rich memories, but man, mine stopped me in my tracks. I mean, they stopped me. There was a Spider-Man annual that John Byrne did that Terry Austin inked that Marv Wolfman wrote. It features Doc Ock. That was just a weekend trip my dad and I took up to Morro Bay here in, you know, between Southern California and Northern California. Really cool, you know. Um, um, little sleepy kind of ocean town and has this really giant, you know, rock configuration and it's, it's cool, but, but there was a drugstore and I pulled that Spider-Man annual as well as a couple issues of Micronauts that were coming out monthly. And I have, those memories are just so etched in my brain of that time. And I can, and I look at those pictures cause we have pictures of me and my dad at Morro Bay. And I love the pictures of me and my dad and, the, and at, at, at that you know, monument or that, that, that whatever, it's not a monument. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a big rock. Um, I, I love my pictures of me and my dad, but I'm also always going, that's the amazing Spider-Man, you know, those are the Micronauts comics. That's how I really track. And my family will tell you it's weird. And I'll admit that it is in fact weird. Also, 
what happened this week is Spider-Man, uh, is it No Way Home? It has home in the title, right? Let's just say it's the new Spider-Man because I get all these home ones, you know, Homecoming, Far From Home. Is it No Way Home? I, I hope it's. I hope it, that's the right one. You can see the amount of research I do into these topics. Look, so that hits. And I don't know when that came out. Tuesday night? It's the first time I've watched a trailer that many times and I can't be, I can't tell you how long. Maybe one of the early Star Wars relaunches in, in 2014, 2015. I poured over that. And not for all the Easter eggs. I, I'm not one of those... I, I had to then go online and be told that was the, you know... That lightning was from Electro. What? That, that totally went over my head. I saw the pumpkin bomb. That that was obvious. I was expecting Alfred Molina, as we all have. And you guys, come on. At this point, if Andrew Garfield and and uh, and Tobey Maguire aren't in that movie, I mean, they need to put them in now because we all figure that they're there and we're just not seeing them and they're hiding them. So, um, but that you know, that uh, uh, trailer just made me smile. Doctor Strange, it's snowing in his house. He's wearing sweatpants. Then he's acting a little goofy. I, I, I think he's acting a little goofy when he cast that spell as well. But it's so great seeing Zendaya and, and Tom Holland back as, as MJ and Peter and, and just everybody in the voice of J.K. Simmons and seeing Spider-Man swing through. And then I read a couple days later that it, it broke the record. It, it Somehow it far exceeded. I, I don't know the number, but it's far exceeded the Endgame trailer. And, uh, and, and in my mind, I'm like, of course it did. Of course it did. Uh, we are so hungry for the candy we like, okay? I said this to my wife and she just laughed and she says, are you going to mention that on your podcast? And I'm like, I'm on track. That's exactly what I'm going to do. So here's the deal. I enjoy the Eternals trailer. I enjoy the Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi, whatever they're telling us to say it now. I used to know it as the master of Kung Fu. Um, and, and I enjoyed Black Widow, but Black Widow is a prequel where the stakes were always going to be limited because we know that she's dead. And and uh, if she wasn't dead before, uh, she's dead now. Um, um, and and, and g- given all the goings-on that are happening outside that film. But, uh, so you got Black Widow, you got Shang-Chi coming out, you got Eternals. Those are all, I, I, I like all of them. I really enjoyed Black Widow. It exceeded my expectations. I've, I've read some discourse where people don't care for it. They really pile on Taskmaster, which I don't understand. I thought he came out cool and and the fact that his identity reveal wasn't what you really wanted i just don't understand taskmaster is not an engine that drives anything um he has never had a successful you know series of his own he's never been a top flight character but there are people who pin their entire like of that movie on taskmaster which again you're welcome to do that that's your thing it's not my thing i enjoyed black widow because it moved and was more entertaining than i than i anticipated i really enjoyed it um in regards to Black Widow, Shang-Chi, The Eternals. Look, here's the deal. They're comic books. So let's say, for sake of argument, they all belong in the candy section. Because I know this. Again, I'm flying home. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm, 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 I'm catching a flight home. It was in Paris just a few weeks ago. Long flight back to the States. Um, and uh, I'm looking for chocolate, for candy that I like. And I saw Sour Patch Kids and Gummy Bears. And technically, those are candy, but that's not candy I like. I needed chocolate. I needed a Hershey bar. I needed a Snickers. And I had given up hope. And I had, you know, bought some um, international chocolate. And I had slumped my way to the checkout station in this, you know, market inside the airport, inside the terminal. And 
in the checkout line is all the candy I like. And I lit up and there's the Snickers and there's M&M's and there's a Hershey bar. And I might've bought all three. I did. Uh, I have a bad candy habit. Um, it's bad. And, and, and I bought all three and I put the international chocolate back and I certainly didn't buy Sour Patch Kids and I certainly did not buy gummy bears because they're candy, but they're not the candy that I like, the candy that I love. Spider-Man No Way Home is candy that we like. The, the, the others are candy and you know what? They're popular candy. People buy gummy bears. People buy Sour Patch Kids. I don't. I, I'm not that. I'll, if you offer one to me, I'll take one. Oh, okay. I'll, it, you know, especially if I need something, you know, to, to some, some taste sensation. But, but what I really want, I want chocolate and I want peanut butter. Okay, that's what I really want. I really want a, a, a peanut butter cup. And, and to be honest, I want a big cup. And, and if that big cup has pretzels in it or, 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 or M&Ms or, or whatever else, because they're, they're thinking of, they're jamming everything in those big cups now. That's what I really want. And Spider-Man No Way Home, we went, that's the candy we really like. That's the candy that we really like. And, and that's why it did the, the ridiculous numbers. And I'm telling you, coming out of this pandemic, everyone keeps thinking, this is the movie, this is the movie, this is the one that you, will unite us all. This is the one that will unite us all. And there have been some real big hits. I've seen, I saw Quiet Place in a theater. I saw Fast and the Furious in a theater. I saw Free Guy in a theater. And each time the crowds went up, Free Guy was sold out. Every, every seat in our Cineplex was sold out. And I, my wife and I, we were, we were pretty shocked. That hasn't happened in this pandemic especially given the, 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 what we've all been experiencing with the Delta variant, <laughs> Delta variant, Delta variant, and all these different, you know, resurgence. I think Spider-Man No Way Home is the movie that will unite mankind. It's, it's the candy that we like. It's the chocolate, the M&Ms, the Snicker bar. They didn't have it. They didn't have Reese's Peanut Butter Cups in, in Paris because uh, I would have probably just bought that. I mixed it up. But the chocolate, the candy that we like in this instance is Spider-Man. It's Spider-Man. It's Doctor Strange. It's No Way Home. It's seeing Alfred Molina say, hello, Peter. I mean, come on. We're, I'm ready. I am so ready because I'll chew on Shang-Chi. I'll chew on Eternals. I thought, you know, my digestive tract was very pleased with how I consume Black Widow. But what? Okay, the candy that we like, it's coming. It's called Spider-Man No Way Home. That's why it's got, got the views up the wazoo because it's familiar and it's fun and, it, and it's stuff that we remember that we loved. And, and I think, you know, look, gratified um, sat satisfaction, uh, you know, delayed satisfaction, uh, delayed satisfaction, um, delayed gratification is a thing. It's a thing. It's absolutely a thing. And this is that. Spider-Man No Way From Home. I was blown away. I was absolutely blown away. Today, the 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 this is going to be an easy one. I got to do this. You know that I love the X-Men. You know that I love Wolverine. You're going to learn a little bit more about Wolverine than maybe you thought. Because man, let me tell you something. The sidebar of what's going on in our society, and I bump into this all the time. There is an entire generation, and if, I be, and if I'm going to be honest with you, I did this podcast as my will and testament to comic books. Um, why, when I read from you from publications, as I will today, they happened. 
those interviews were flesh and blood people with a recorder and they transcribed it and it was put into a popular magazine and it was consumed by other people and it's there as evidence. It's evidence of what occurred, of what was going through these people's minds. As creatives, we like to talk. These creatives that I'm going to read to you today, they like to talk. I really enjoyed, a, it's a full year more so, when I shared with you all of the sources behind the original Wolverine miniseries, how Chris Claremont had to convince Frank Miller to do it, how Frank didn't want to just do another, you know, slash, you know, claw, berserker guy uh, uh, version of Wolverine. He was obviously extremely successful, having turned Daredevil around, becoming a superstar talent himself, but Chris had that drive up to San Southern California, uh, up to LA from San Diego after the show was over, and he went to work, and then... Again, the 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 the, the obvious um, influences of sh of the novel Shogun, which was then adapted into at the time a a, a record breaking uh, miniseries on NBC starring Richard Chamberlain, and it's again about a, a a guy whose boat crashes, washes ashore, and has to take on the Eastern culture and learn the ways of of you know of 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 the the, the Shogun, the samurai, and 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 so much of that is borrowed and, and completely you know, injected directly into that Wolverine miniseries. And so much of what I read to you, I read from Marvel's own publications, from the forewords, from the uh from from from, from their coverage and their opinions of of that miniseries, which they reprinted just again in my special kind of book that I ordered online that was part of their new kind of collectible line. And right there, there you know, it's those four issues are always easy to slap in and fill out and, and increase the the volume of the package. And, uh, you know, so just again, this summer they've reprinted it. It was a high-end, you know, $200, you know, collectible leather-bound book. But there it is. It's the John Byrne stuff and it's the Frank Miller stuff. And, 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 and Wolverine was the number one character in comics and he carried on that mantle for years. I do wonder where he ranks now in the minds of fans. I, he's still got to be like top three, top five, right? You're always going to have Spider-Man, Batman, and then I think Wolverine is in there. So I, I believe he's in top three. Um, maybe Venom jumps ahead a uh, occasionally. Uh, maybe, maybe Deadpool at one point was Punisher. Um, but I'm just, I'm just, I'm just basing like when I go out and I'm among the, in the stores and I see the merchandise and I see the stuff that's being pushed Wolverine is never kind of Wolverine's in my opinion, never fallen out of a top five most popular character. Sometimes he's number one. Sometimes he's number three. Sometimes he's number five. I, I don't think there's ever been a time that he drops out. So, what do you really know about Wolverine's origin? Did you know that he was a teenager when he was created? He was supposed to be a teenager when he appears in 1974 for the first time in Hulk 181, dispatched by the Canadian government to get Wolverine off out of their forests, that he is intended to be a teenager. Yes, he most certainly is. So I am going to share with you, we are going to go slide down this mountain. Um, it's going to be a nice snowy slope. You know, and we got a good good snowboard to do this on. We're, this is where we're going to go today because this is really interesting. I'm going to read directly from interviews with Len Wein, John Byrne, Chris Claremont. I'm going to piece together, and, and really the most important thing, I'm going to tap into that um, when I get to the John Byrne interview, which is after this one. Uh, I'm going to tell you what was happening in real time in fandom and how like th th this John Byrne interview was the mic drop of all mic drops at the time. And, and I don't remember anyone doing anything this dramatic for years after. To me, it's the mic drop of my lifetime. 
in this interview where he revealed all this stuff about Wolverine that had not been revealed yet. So we're going to get to that. But right now, Len Wein uh, spoke to Back Issue Magazine. And uh, this is uh, the year on this issue is... Uh, come on, why is it always, my, you know, I need to see it, but my eye diverts away from it. It's 2004. 2004 is when this was uh, published, and Len Wein is talking to Back Issue Magazine. So that's my source. Um, and, uh, and, and it says that uh, a writer's flair for dialects led to the creation of the most popular comic book character to emerge over the last 30 years. So at least in 2004, we're still on the same page that Wolverine is the most popular character to emerge in the last 30 years. It says, In early 1974, Len Wein was the writer of Marvel's Incredible Hulk title. He was winding down a stint scripting the Brother Voodoo feature that was appearing in Strange Tales. I have a very good ear for accents, Len Wein revealed to back issue. Len Wein um, had passed away uh, many years back and uh, one of the sweetest, most talented guys to ever work in comic books. So, just wanted to acknowledge what, what a sweetheart and what a giant talent that he is. Um, he says, uh, I used to love writing accents in books, trying to make you hear the voice with the accent. Len's editor on the Hulk was Roy Thomas. Whatever strengths as a writer were considerable, um, uh, Len says about Roy. Roy had no ear for accents, though, and loved the fact that I was doing Jamaican and Haitian accents in Brother Voodoo. So he came to me one day and he said, hey, Len, I want you to do a character with a Canadian accent. Let's make a Canadian character. And, and here's the name I want to work with, Wolverine. Do that. This is, this is Len telling you that Roy Thomas, his editor, came by his office because Len was in, Len and Marv Wolfman and Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway at this time were what they call editor, writer editors. Marvel had this brief period where they could write and edit or edit other stuff which they did, but they would have dominion, especially when they wrote and edited their own book over everything. And, 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 and honestly, a lot of good books came out of this. More good books than bad books, but this was a period. So uh, Thomas, Roy Thomas, agrees with this entire detail and says, uh, I knew that we had a lot of Canadian readers on Marvel Comics, Roy says. And this is behind his reasoning. I thought that if we had a Canadian hero, even if he was to start out like a quasi-villain like so many Marvel heroes do, and you guys, come on, Deadpool, Punisher, this Venom, Wolverine, they all started out as anti-heroes, quasi-villains, okay, threats. And uh, it's, it's a great path. Boba Fett, it's a great... I mean, we're going to have a book of Boba Fett series soon, okay? I think he's gone way beyond being just a villain. Um, he said, I thought having a Canadian hero, even when he started out as a quasi-villain like so many Marvel heroes do, would be a good idea. I considered the name Badger or Wolverine. I decided on the latter. I told Len over lunch, I would like a Canadian hero with that name. That he should be short of stature and short of temper, just like the namesake Wolverine. This was pretty much my contribution to the character. Um, and then Roy wants to tell you that he considers it a co-creation. And uh, he said, Len and Herb Tremp, uh, Herb Trimpy, who, are the art, who was the artist, the long-running artist, another beautiful, beautiful man, amazing. You've heard me mention him in regards to Godzilla and so many other... He drew every issue of Godzilla. You should, you know, he, he, he was the artist on the run of Godzilla. If not every issue, maybe he missed one, but he was the dedicated Godzilla artist. 
Um, and before that, he was the dedicated Hulk artist. He also did Shogun Warriors. He did Star Wars comics. He did uh, he did Marvel Team Up. I mean, he did the Defenders. Herb, just a beautiful man, amazing talent. It inspired guys like me and Eric Larson more than we will ever be able to express. So uh, um, he, he says that Lennon, Herb went to, went to work on this. Um, Roy Thomas's directive inspired Len Wein to research Wolverines. He says, so I went about researching Wolverines. Uh, he says they're short, they're nasty, with razor-sharp claws that'll attack creatures 10 times their size. That's what I always liked about a Wolverine, too. It's really cool. Um, the perfect soundbite definition of this pint-sized Canuck who fearlessly challenged the towering Hulk. Um, at this deve developmental stage of Wolverine's history, Len Wein's embellishments upon Thomas' proposed hero began to take shape. And uh, I don't think either being a mutant or having adamantium claws was part of my concept, Roy Thomas says. Uh, even though, and he did, create the term adamantium when he created Ultron. Ween's uh, recollection is that he created Wolverine as a mutant, gifted with the tenacity and heightened senses as an animal would have. So that's, that's Len's recollection of this. Um, Wolverine's claws, and we've discussed this, Dave Cockrum has mentioned this in my Secret History of the X-Men, where you find out that a bunch of the X-Men that you know and love like Storm were going to be Legion of Superheroes characters until he had a falling out with. That is a one of my favorite episodes, and I've got to tell you, you guys have told me that is one of the episodes that you have dug the most. Again, some of this secret history, some of this untold stories, I am so happy to bring it to you because it has been contained in my dome for so long. So, uh, so, 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 uh, he says in, in, in regards to these, these, these claws and these gloves, cause Dave said the same thing, um, in those issues in, in that podcast, um, the idea about the claws in Len's mind where they were vastly different than what we now acknowledge and recognize they were retractable, but they were retractable into the gloves. They were part of the glove. I guess it was Dave Cockrum and Chris Claremont's idea to make them part of his body. Len says, my feeling was the claws were always made of adamantium. Adamantium is indestructible metal, which you would need, obviously, going up against the Hulk. Um, Ween envisioned that the gloves were made of a fabric-covered adamantium, a logical way to approach this. And, and given comic books and, and all of our leaps and bounds and that something called the ultimate nullifier is enough to make Galactus scared and leave our Earth, and it's a handheld device that Reed took a couple issues to develop, that that ultimately... That's comic book logic. We, we can fall for that. I, I, I hate when people put real world logic into comic books. No, it's comic book logic, which means it's made up, which means it's anything, okay? Which means it's bullshit, and we love it, okay? So <clears throat> uh, Thomas's, Roy Thomas and Len Wein's memories diverge at this juncture. Roy states Wolverine was intended to have some sort of regular presence in the Marvel books if he had proved to be popular. But at that time, there was not an X-Men book yet. And I don't think there was any part in suggesting that the Canadian character was necessarily going to be a part of an international X-Men team. Um, he, uh, he, he says, uh, Wien confesses that from his perspective, the invitation to make Wolverine an X-Men had been there from the beginning. I was the one who decided he was a mutant, Lynn says, but I never expected to be writing giant-sized X-Men, uh, the, the launch point of the new X-Men team in 1975, at the same time. So, so again, Lynn has the unique authorship of Hulk 181 and Giant Size X-Men. He's the author of both. He has authorship. He really does have maybe the best case in terms of creative uh, uh, claim to this. But this is definitely, this is definitely a, uh, a, a a group effort. If Roy is telling him, I need you to create a Canadian 
called Wolverine. There is absolute cachet there. Uh, so, so then Lynn goes on and says, I always thought somebody else was going to get this assignment to do the X-Men, but it, I, I drew it. I created Wolverine to be the Canadian mutant, knowing that the X-Men concept was going to take off and be an inter- international group of characters. And I always figured whoever gets the book, here's your Canadian guy. You have him. Uh, it was really a case of me being a good soldier and preparing something for the company's future. So here's where he is a teenager. He's a teenager. And this is this is going to be great because I'm telling you this John Byrne thing is just a giant pivot. Longtime readers are aware that the original X-Men who premiered in 1963 were five teenagers. This is true. Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Iceman, Angel, the Temple, Touchers, Arm, Casters. I did a whole podcast on this. Um, this is why they failed. Banding together against Professor Xavier's tutorship and, and, and guidance. Um, he considered, given that assumption about the X-Men, that Wolverine would be in his late teens. This is Len Wein saying, when Wolverine appears in Hulk 181, he is a teenager. He says, uh, I did give his age a little thought in regards to his first appearance. In the original Hulk story, I never bothered um, to give an age to Wolverine, he explains. It wasn't important to that specific story. So this is about Hulk 181. But if you look at that story, he is youngish in the face in that book. And he has that shorter mask. And uh, his age wasn't much of a concern at the time to the Hulk editor, Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas concedes that he pl- he believed that the Wolverine and Hulk 181, he says right here, I probably thought of him as being in his early 20s to the extent that it, would, it crossed my mind. But we didn't really have any, any discussion. We didn't have any discussion as to his age. An examination of Wolverine's original costume design by the legendary artist John Romita Sr. Uh, gives that more whisker-looking mask. Herb... Uh, worked closely from Rita's model sheet and uh, even mimicking one of the poses uh, in, in, in the interior issue. So uh, so now you got John Romita Sr. jumping on this. Wolverine is he's got a lot of daddies. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, literally, the, 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 there, there's more daddies to come. Um, and, and we're already... <laughs> with issue, Hulk 181, we have, we have four daddies. Now let me pivot here. This is why when, when you have one daddy, and the writer artist creates that character and introduces and or as I did sells it. It's it's um it's easier. It's easier that way. You know, um this this is definitely character by committee and kind of whoever drew first or designed or or contributed this or contributed that that this is definitely one of the most character by committees I've ever experienced. Although like I said Len has the unique authorship of authoring both Wolverine's first appearances. And, uh, and I, I think that does give him, uh, a leg up <clears throat> the, uh, and visuals matter, but also they drastically change that mask and they speak to that later. The original Wolverine mask with the eyes coming through and the whiskers was not one for the ages. Okay. So, uh, so, so they, they, you know, talked about his, um, him, him, his age. And Len even goes so far as to say in Giant Size X-Men number one, they de-aged Banshee, which I do. Banshee had, a, had, had, had appeared earlier four, five years earlier in X-Men comics. But um, they thought that he had looked like he was in his late 30s in his ex- in his debut in 1967 in, in X-Men 28. Banshee appeared in, in 1968, uh, 1967 in X-Men 28. And Len says, we were hedging, but we definitely younged Banshee up. We took him from his late 30s to his um, mid-20s. And, and, and it, he, 
Lin says he thought it would be more effective to make Professor X an exe- an, 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 a more effective mentor when everybody else was, was much younger than him. He didn't want Banshee being the father figure. He wanted Xavier being the father figure. Um, so that's why they de-aged him. Um, and, uh, and, and, and again, they just said that they were operating at that point that Wolverine was a teenager. I mean, we're talking 19. And then it says here, you know, what if he'd stayed a teen? And, uh, and, and Len Wein said that had he not vacated the scripting chores of X-Men, he would have downplayed the bloodlust and showed that Wolverine was more struggling to control it as a teenager. And that that was what was making him a hero is that as bad as he wanted to disembowel you, I'm reading this, that, that it was the hero inside of him and his natural instinct to, to, which was to him disembowel you was, was that, that, that he was able to say, no, you can't do that. You can't be disemboweling people. Um, and, and that would have been his constant struggle as teenage Wolverine moving through the X-Men had Len stayed on. And, uh, and he said, I definitely would have been more, um, you know, uh, uh, I, I would have, I, I would have been more stick in the mud about these ages. Um, when we decided to go forward finally and say that Wolverine was not a teenager, um, I, I, I'm not sure he's talking about Marvel. I, I wasn't a big fan of that. This is what Len Wein says. And, uh, and, and, and then he, he talks about the animated X-Men series, uh, X-Men Evolution 2000, where they, uh, um, depicted him much younger. And, and I remember that he was much younger and, uh, more of the youthful Wolverine that Len believes he was portraying in his first appearances. So that is, I was a teenage Wolverine. Now we know that Dave Cockrum, who did the later issues when Len leaves and he works with Chris, Chris Claremont, he was not a big fan, admittedly, of Wolverine. He didn't care about him. It's not until a fellow Canadian John Byrne comes on and does Wolverine that he even gets more popular because John has a definite thing for uh, for Wolverine and, and and specifically for for depicting him without his mask on and making him he felt shorter more stout he definitely got hairier John Byrne put hair like from his neck all the way to his toes I mean this dude was a a walking carpet and it was fun and obviously when you draw Wolverine the fun thing any artist will tell you is adding all that hair, all those layers. Well, here's the deal. The book takes off. Even I've, I've mentioned Tom Brevoort and his blah, blah, blog, and I'm going to do it again here. It's a, it's a great blog. You guys should check it out. Um, I think it's the Tom Brevoort experience or tombrevoort.com. If you Google it, blah, blah, blog, it'll come up. He even a few months back in reference to the John Byrne, Chris Claremont run said that during the Hellfire Club slash Dark Phoenix saga, that's when the book took off and it became Marvel's number one seller and it never looked back and so much of that was on the popularity of Wolverine so I'm eight years old when I get giant size X-Men number one 1975 I'm eight years old I love it it's cool I've talked about how it just completely changed the way I looked at this at, at the series they weren't arm casters and temple temple touchers anymore they were more exciting they were more um a more more physical more brutish but w- with the addition of Colossus's brute strength and Wolverine's claws they were more, um, just more on the attack. They were more action oriented. It was, um, it was a vibe I was more into. They also had much, in in my opinion, better visual representation. The 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 the, the characters looked better. They looked more exciting. And uh, but Wolverine broke out, became the big star, 
and that's why he started you know guest starring in even more comic books because he was so popular. Well, the X-Men themselves go on to just dominate in the sales in a way that the market hadn't seen in a long time. And why this is important is because in 1982, Fanagraphics Books, which was, again, known more for their hardcore journalism, the Comics Journal, they had done a they had launched a nicer, friendlier version of the Comics Journal. The Comics Journal was all, you know, um, um, more like hard journalism that held comic book creatives' feet to the fire. Why they were sellouts. You know, why, you know, why aren't you owning and creating your own work? Why are you working for the man? That was a lot of the, you know, underlying themes of the Comics Journal. I liked it. You got these long 30, sometimes 40-page interviews. Uh with 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 the the creatives, occasionally they they literally have the single best. I've referenced it before. I don't have the number in front of me. John Byrne interview ever, and he goes off on everybody in the business. He goes off on Marv Wolfman, on George Perez, on Jim Starlin. Um, he goes off on Chris Claremont. Uh, he he goes off on literally um, uh, just and there's people I'm just blanking on, but he, uh, Bob Layton. He goes off on everybody, and 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 he is in the full throes. It's 1980. He is in the full throes. He is a man who has had multiple hits. He's doing Captain America and X-Men at that time. And I can tell you as a fan who was buying both, there were no books that people craved more than those books. But Comics Journal begat The Amazing Heroes, which was more the dumbed-down kiddie version, which I loved, which was more friendly, which was the template that Marvel would, um, that Wizard would would run with and ruin. Um, but the, uh, the Wizard uh, would copy... Amazing Heroes. But Fantagraphics is now in the... I mean, they want to make money, right? They're a publisher that wants to make money. So they license from Marvel the rights to thick magazine... They're square bound. They're square bound. And they're thick. They're not like phone book thick. But they're... Here, let me see. They're, like, they've got the page counts. Both of these are 140-page books. X-Men Companion 1, X-Men Companion 2. And it took advantage of the fact that these were the most, that the X-Men was the most exciting uh, franchise of its age. They put two, so, so literally we are looking at just shy of 300 pages of interviews. It's Chris Claremont, it's Dave Cockrum, it's Len Wein, it's Roy Thomas, it's John Byrne, it's Terry Austin. They interview everybody, but they don't interview John Byrne until part two, okay? And uh, X-Men Companion part two, I just did not know that it would just, completely drop this bomb on me and each of these interviews are very in-depth they they really go all out in sharing thought processes behind the creation of 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 the book roy thomas how he talks openly in x-men companion one how the getting neil adams who you know that i know that that is the best comic book illustrator of all time and certainly was in the in his prime when roy thomas got him on board to do the x-men um that the, the needle didn't move. The sales didn't move. He says, we weren't going up even with Neil Adams and the Savage Land and Sauron and Magneto and Polaris. and Ma it, That is an epic run. Some of the best comic books, some of the best comic books, period, not just X-Men comic books. And they are so magnificently, beautifully illustrated. Marvel routinely goes back to press on them. They are available in all manner of reprint. They are part of the Masterworks line. They have their own Neil Adams dedicated reprint. They did them in a, uh, a beautiful uh, 11 by 17 album uh, about a couple of years back, readily available, the Neil Adams X-Men stuff. That, And because that stuff didn't work, they closed this, the, the, the series down and went to reprints. They wanted to keep the X-Men name, but they literally just started reprinting 
from the original run to keep it on the stands until Giant Size X-Men reignited the fire and, and they blew up. And again, look, X-Men, I know we live in a, a world now of Marvel Universe, but the X-Men was a giant success. And you guys, do you remember how exciting it was waiting for X-Men 2? Do you remember how exciting? Do you remember, um, is that the summer of 2002, 2003, where all the advertisings, all, all, all of the promotion is, is, is coming forth? Um, building on what we all... The first X-Men movie was a surprise hit. It made hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide. It was a giant hit for Fox. They didn't know what they had. They doubled the budget. Um, X-Men 2. Uh, do you guys remember that? I mean, the Entertainment Weekly covers. The, the, the character sheets. In, in my mind, Fox was... Um, gave the template to how Marvel now, how comic book movies are marketed, period, and it was X-Men 2. You got individual character posters, you know, images released, and there was no social media. This was all just basic internet. So much more of it magazine, TV, advertise-driven. But X-Men 2 was a giant movie. We all remember it fondly. I don't know anyone who even attempts to crap on that movie. It is so well made. Remember, X-Men was the one that was leading out of the gate. And uh, and it, it, it broke through. And then, and then Spider-Man from Sony in between. And then we got X-Men 2 before we got Spider-Man 2. But that X-Men, Spider-Man, one-two punch, those were exciting times. Those were the franchises before Marvel expertly turned there. And I've done a whole podcast on this too, about the you know how they turned, how, how, how Marvel Marvel's investors were told to sell the stock because all they had left was the D-list characters, Cap, Iron Man, Thor. So it is tremendous what Feige and the MCU has accomplished in making them the premier draw now. But my my 20 years of comic book fandom and, and, and getting into comics early was all about the X-Men. So X-Men Companion comes out. X-Men Companion number two. Everyone loves Wolverine. They eventually get to Wolverine. They talk of Wolverine. I am reading from page 90, which immediately goes to 91. It's, it's the last sentence on page 90 of the X-Men Companion number two. These are by Fantagraphic Books. X-Men Companion number one has maybe the single best illustration of the X-Men ever by Michael Golden. The back cover reveals the entire image. The um, You're getting three quarters of the image on the cover. These were $4.95, five bucks back in the day. I didn't know they were coming. I didn't see the preview catalog. I showed up one day. I saw it. I, I, I grabbed it. There was maybe three at my comic book store. And I'm going to tell you, this is a Saturday afternoon that I am in 1982... I am 14 years old, okay? And uh, and I have uh, 14, 15. I can't drive. I needed to hitch a ride. My mom, my dad, my sister, they would always take me to the comic store. I came back with the X-Men Companion. There, we had a, our living room looked out in our front yard at like, and, and so like, you know, when the sun is setting, it was always the prettiest time of day. I've always been a big sunset guy, more so than a sunrise guy. I'm a sunset guy. So there's my, you know, little, aspect of me that you now know I'm a sunset guy. Okay. So, so I remember grabbing this giant, you know, it's a magazine size. It's more like 10 by 12 size, uh, square bound, thick, 150 pages. Cause the first one's 150. This one's 150, 140 and sitting down to read these interviews. Cause John Byrne was somebody that I, you know, obviously actively consumed, collected. And I wanted to know his thoughts. He, there's a reason they saved him for number two. Because if they had John Byrne's interview in number one, maybe you don't even buy two. Two is all about the John Byrne interview. Well, the, the interviewer, Peter Sanderson, who 
uh, went on to do a lot of Marvel Universe handbook. I mean, he he wrote. He is kind of like the fact file guy, the the facts historian for Marvel Comics, and he's done some of those coffee table books I've talked about before. He is either editing or a contributing writer. He's interviewing John here, and he says, "You're the one who came up with the idea of the adamantium ske- skeleton within Wolverine." So exactly how did he get that? How did you come up with this idea that he's 60 years old? Boom. Boom. 60 years old. I hadn't heard that. 60 years old. Wolverine, who we're just out of Days of Future Past at this point. Wolverine is, when this comes out, we are in the Dave Cockrum, the second Dave Cockrum run, okay? And uh, everyone is still jonesing over all of the brilliant John Byrne era work and and the x-men is the number one selling book for marvel but here's where he drops that he's 60 years old i can still remember my spine stiffening i I sat up straight i was my my mouth slacked a little i'm looking out at that beautiful sunset on my street out out through our we had the big bay windows that that overlooked our front yard and out to the other neighborhood the, the neighborhood and uh and burns says no it's been hinted at it's been hinted around at in regards to, also, I should say, you, you, <laughs> I stopped too early. Also, you came up with the idea that he's 60 years old, which hasn't been mentioned in the book yet. Boom. Now you know why I literally pooped my pants. I filled my diaper. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm literally blown away by this. John says, no, it's been hinted around at. I don't know whether any of this is going to come to pass. But the concept of the claws, as soon as they came out of his body, I said to myself, okay, there's something funny here. Chris Claremont early on said that it was a mute, that as a mutation, that he had mutated these claws, which were biological, which were biological adamantium, he says. Chris go, and John goes, so when I got off the floor, I said, no, 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 that's not what happened. And what I conceived of was that his power is the ability of total regeneration of his body, except it did not work on his bones. One day he was in in a tremendous accident and every bone in his body got broken and everything regenerated except that when he got out of bed, his weight broke his legs and they realized that whatever it was wasn't working on the calcium-based bones or whatever else you want to use. The vindicator, James Hudson, came along and said, listen to the way your body heals. We can do something. Listen, the way your body heals, we can do something. We can't do with any other human being. That is, we can remove each of your bones individually, cast them in adamantium and replace them. And that is what they did, a very long and probably painful process. They removed every one of his bones except the spinal column and the skull, which they reinforced with adamantium. And as for the question, where do the red blood cells come from, which everybody hits me with, his power is total regeneration and his red blood cells don't wear out. So he doesn't need new ones. So Peter Sanderson says, so when you say cast new bones, it's not that they were sheathed in adamantium. They are adamantium. They are adamantium, John says, except for the skull and the spinal column, which are sheathed in adamantium. Peter Sanderson says, and it's his regeneration powers that keep him looking young, even though in your concept he's 60. And this guy's, this is the this is when you're like, this all works. If he regenerates, this is where my generation heard this for the first page, 1990, on page 91 in 1982 of the X-Men Companion Volume 2. And he says, yes, exactly. He's aging, but you see it very slowly because of his regenerative process. And then Sanderson says, oh yeah, and you originally were planning to do that story where he meets Captain America. And Captain America recognizes him as an old war ally. Again, you want a source where that Chris Claremont, Jim Lee, Black Widow, Captain America story comes from? It's right here in this interview. This is where this was dropped. John says, yes, it's someone he's met, which he was going to, 
which was going to be the story that we would establish that Wolverine was in his 60s. And Peter Sanderson says, and you also figured out who his father was? And he says, yeah, that was supposed to be Sabretooth. Now, I don't know. I understand that Mary Jo Duffy is planning on doing a Sabretooth story of her own. Mary Jo was writing Power Man and Iron Fist at this time. Also a great run on that book. Whether or not she'll do anything with that, I don't know. It's entirely up to her Her now. It's her character because she is writing Iron Fist in Power Man and Iron Fist. And then Peter Sanderson says, but to your mind, Sabretooth also has the regenerative power? And he says, yes, Sabretooth is 120 years old. Just, that's a statement with a period that Byrne says right here. I have the first appearance of Sabretooth at this time when he battles um, um, Iron Fist in the snow. And, 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 and so I'm like, wait a second. Sabretooth and Wolverine are connected. And, 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 and Sabretooth's 120, what? Peter Sanderson says, and his claws are just on his gloves. They're not natural. He goes, no, his power is mutant generation. He's just got sharp claws. Was Sabretooth created with the intention of making him Wolverine's father? Or is that something that you thought of later? Peter Sanderson asks him. John Byrne says, in my mind, he was created that way. I drew him that way. I don't think Chris conceived of him that way, but I said, hey, here's another Canadian and we can do a lot of stuff here. So I'll just draw him that way. And again, when he's saying it, he had the uh, the, the long sideburns on the face and, and he did on his first appearance. Sabretooth has the exact um, mutton chops that Wolverine does, except they're blonde. He said um, he could be Wolverine's father or he could be his brother. You know, I just wasn't sure at that time, John Byrne says. And um, then he says, Peter Sanderson says, now why does Wolverine prefer being with the X-Men other than Alpha Flight? He's less regimented. The X-Men are not tied to the military. He's not Captain Logan in the X-Men. And Captain Logan has requirements in Canada. And he doesn't have them in the X-Men. And um, he says, does he find them friendlier than Alpha Flight? Yes, yes, he does. And uh, and and um, so then it says, what do you conceive of his relationship with the Hudsons, who in the, in the origin story, the Hudsons are who found Wolverine wandering through the tundra, you know, with his memory scrambled and not knowing who he was. And they kind of, again are why he gets these this adamantium transplant. He says, his relationship with the Hudsons is very close. They gave him back something of his humanity when he had more or less lost it. It's difficult to say because I'm talking still in terms of what I'd conceived with what Chris and Dave might do with characters that I did not know at the time. How did he lose his humanity? Well, as I saw it, the accident that crushed him and broke all his bones. This accident a long time ago, well, just after the war, some 30-odd years or longer, as Marvel time goes, before the Hudsons found him, I figured that Wolverine... Turning the page, reading from page 93, X-Men Companion, 1982, had turned him into a basket case, terribly crippled in a wheelchair, body braced, the whole thing, living out in the woods as much as by himself as he could and just becoming more and more bitter and animalistic over the years. The Hudsons came along and said, we can rebuild you, we have the technology. And, we'll, we'll, and in doing so, they gave back a piece of his humanity. After a third of his lifetime under those conditions, it would take a long time just to accept this normalcy. Did you see Wolverine as having something lived as having lived in the same apartment with them, or was he just a friend? He might have lived with them in the early days, part of human uh, as part of the humaniza humanization thing. It had been lost for a long time. He had to adjust. They had to show him color television. Here's what a movie is. Um, it, it, it's a long time from that point where he becomes this home homicidal maniac. Or did that happen before? or after all of the killing. He goes, that was before. I think a lot of that comes from his upbringing, from having Sabretooth as his father. I would think that this was, he was an abused child like nobody had ever seen before. Then he talks about that he called, that there is a Mount Logan in Canada. And here's where he drops the bomb that they were living up in Mount Logan, the tallest mountain in Canada. And that he was born up on that mountain. And Sabretooth, 
gave him that name, Logan, because he was he was born on Mount Logan. I mean, this interview is mic drop, mic drop, mic drop. He said, uh, you know, that again, he 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 just that that is basically the meat and potatoes across these two pages. He then gets into the romance, why he loves Jean Grey, Mariko, all that stuff. But right there in that interview is this. Whoa! Sabretooth is 120 years old. Wolverine in 1982, they're telling us, is 60 years old. Fought alongside, recognized Captain America from World War II. They recognized each other in a story that was never seen print. But Mount Logan, born on Mount Logan, tallest mountain in Canada. All this stuff, exciting, really exciting stuff, establishes right there. Wolverine's his dad, or maybe it's his brother. So, Chris Claremont, Wolverine gets his own series in 1988. Issue 10 is written by Chris and is um, drawn by John Buscema and ex- expertly, maybe the first time they, they combined on a Wolverine issue, inked by Bill Sienkiewicz. And it tells of Sabretooth and Wolverine's first encounter when so Sabretooth has killed the love of Wolverine's life, Silver Fox. But it is take, takes place in the 19th century. It's in a like mining town and it's Western and people look more cowboyish. And um, and and they have this giant battle that, that, that Sabretooth, in the story published by Marvel Comics, Wolverine number 10 asserts his authority, his mockery. He taunts, beats Wolverine. Wolverine is coming to terms with, you know, that 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 that, that, that he can in fact stand toe-to-toe with Sabretooth, attempts to kill him. They have a relationship. It is it is in that issue. You don't know if he's older brother and younger brother or father and son, but it is all implied. But it all came from this X-Men companion in 1982. That is where this stuff had its roots. That's where this tree grew. That's where all of this stuff came from. So you got Len Wein, I was a teenage Wolverine. You got John Byrne dropping dimes going Mount Logan. That's why his name's Logan. Sabretooth's 120 years old. He's 60 years old. The reason he looks so young is the regenerative powers. Wow! So when Joe Quesada is like, well, we should do Origins because his famous quote was after the success of the first Wolverine movie, we need to establish Wolverine's origin and tell it before Hollywood tells it. Well, it was already it was already told in these interview books. Let's give credit where credit is damn well due. John Byrne, Len Wein, Roy Thomas, all these people mixed together, but John came up with the modern kind of archetype of what we know as Wolverine today, and this is where it all went down in these and and sitting in those in in in, in the lounge chair. We had like well, they're not lounge. They were they were like. Swivel comfy chairs looking out at that sunset that Saturday night. My mind was blown and I am still recovering. It changed me forever. How amazing and exceptional this reveal was. And again, they are still dining out on this interview. 1982, they are dining out on this all these years later. So there you go. I was a teenage Wolverine. That is the sum total of how everything that that is literally, I told you we were going to slide down the mountain. We're going to slide. That is the boulder that was pushed off the mountain, that started the avalanche, that, that is still crashing the shores um, um, below, that, that, that all the genius of Wolverine was unlocked in that interview. But again, you saw what the, 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 that the Wolverine that you saw in Wolverine 181, he was a teenager. They were coming out of his gloves. There was a lot of, 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 of piecing together that, that created this most popular character that we know and love today. This is the time of the show where I read your reviews. You guys are so generous with me and you leave all the nice words and and and, 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 and reviews of the show, which we need. I've told you, um, getting back to this show the second time around um, has just been a blast. 
and 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 you guys, your um your your reviews that you lead that you leave help the show so much. It helps it helps our tracking. It helps our awareness just as much as all of the word of mouth that you're putting into it. I'm gonna read two of these today. Um, this is uh this is my 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 buddy. This is this is this is gonna be quick. It's Jorel, the host of Krypton. Thank you, Rob. I love this podcast. Five stars. The title of it is Love It. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Jorel, the host of Krypton, I thank you so much for your very brief, but I feel the enthusiasm. Love it. Thank you, Rob. Love this podcast. And I love you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in each and every time we drop the show. You guys can reach me. I am on social media at Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Um, blue checks next to both of those. So you're, you are really talking and, and interacting with me. And I love hearing from you. I love sharing ideas. I love going back and forth. Thank you for always talking to me on social media. I am all over Facebook. I'm in a million different groups. Um, and I'm probably talking and thinking about comics and Wolverine multiple times a day. And thank you again for tuning in, you guys. I appreciate it so much. Continue um, to listen. We got a backlog. So many episodes now. Um, I, I just share this podcast with your friends if they love comics, if they love what's happening in the comic book pop culture world. There, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of science and, and and history contained in these episodes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. You guys know the drill. This is the time where you commit to me that you are going to take care of yourself, and I believe you, and I hope that you are, and we are going to talk again real soon. 